morning's sermon is based on two verses from Paul. The first one is Romans 12, verse 2. Romans 12, verse 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says again, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Last week, I sought to persuade you from Ephesians chapter 4 that to be a Christian is to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus who helps others follow Jesus. We talked about how the goal of Christian discipleship is increasing spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. And the main sphere for Christian discipleship is the local church. Christians living in close, personal relationships with other Christians, helping one another follow Jesus. And beginning today, the next three sermons are going to focus on living out this discipleship, this life of following Jesus and helping others to do the same. And we're going to talk about following Jesus in our heads, our hearts, and our hands. I want us to meditate together on ways we can make progress together in our spiritual maturity and in our Christ-likeness, in right thinking and right feeling and right acting. My, My desire is that as a church, we would know what is right and true. We would have feelings and attitudes that align with what is right and true, and that we would behave well and make decisions according to what is right and true. And so these three areas, head, heart, and hand, they they show up all over scripture. But one passage where they're seen together most clearly is Mark chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. So we'll get to this passage soon in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. But in Mark 12, verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than a whole burnt offering and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
Notice in the passage that Jesus quotes the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6. He tells this scribe, this Jewish scribe, that the highest calling for a human is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the scribe who mirrors back what Jesus has said as a good listener and dialogue partner, he rephrases this as loving God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. Do you see the three aspects? Head, hearts, hands. Thinking, feeling, acting. Knowledge, emotions, behaviors. That's our mutual task. Love God with our heart and our understanding and, and our strength. And out of that love for God, love one another and others as we love ourselves. Love God with your heart, your understanding, your strength, your head, your heart, your hands. So these three aspects of who we are, head, heart, and hands, they're, they're of course inseparable. You can't grow in one without growing in the others. You need all three. It's like a three-legged stool. If you ignore one, the whole structure will fall over. You can't grow in your knowledge of God without it affecting your feelings and your actions. You can't take actions for God without learning and feeling. You can't feel love or awe or joy without wanting to learn more or move in some way. So these three realities, they're interweaving, they feed each other, they grow increasingly strong or increasingly weak together. So for the sake of clarity, we're gonna devote a sermon to each aspect, head, heart, hands, but as we focus on one, we're going to inevitably touch on the other two. So this morning, the head or the mind is in the forefront and heart and hands are in the background. I'm, I'm going to bounce around scripture and draw on a number of passages, but our central texts are these two passages from Paul in, in Romans 12 and 2 Corinthians 3. In, in Romans 12 verse 2, Paul stresses that spiritual transformation comes in part by the means of renewing our minds. Spiritual transformation comes through renewing our minds. And then in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, he says that we are transformed, so he uses that same word both times, transformed into the image of Christ. In other words, we grow in Christ-likeness by beholding his glory. And so in these two texts, we see the need for the transformed mind, the miracle of mind transformation that only God can do, and the need to foster this transformation in our lives and our relationships. So first we have the mind's need for transformation. In, in Romans 12, 2, Paul lays out two paths. He warns against this path and encourages toward the other path. Negatively, he tells us, do not be conformed to the world. Positively, he tells us to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So don't be conformed, do be transformed. In other words, there are two broad ways of thinking. 
One path, one way of thinking is the thinking of this world. In, in Paul's writing and in other New Testament writers, John, for example, this world, that's shorthand for humanity in rebellion against God. John famously says in John 3.16 that God so loves the world, sinful humanity in rebellion against God, God so loves the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, whichever individuals within this rebellious humanity, if they believe in him, they should not perish but have eternal life. So, Paul says, you can have a mind that is conformed to the rebellious impulses that are pervasive in humanity. Your mind can be shaped by the world instead of by God. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't be conformed to the thinking of the world. Instead, do be transformed by the renewal of the mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Rather than rebelling against God's truth and commands, know and understand and receive and love God's commands and do what they say. Two ways of thinking, conform to the world, transformed by the renewal of your mind. And again, in 2 Corinthians 3, he lays out two paths. He says that as followers of Christ, we behold God's glory with unveiled faces and we are transformed by what we see into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Before becoming Christians, we are spiritually blind. And Paul says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 3, he says that our minds are hardened. That's the first image. You have a person whose mind is hardened. They're spiritually blind and hardened to the truth. But then God saves us and with newly uncovered spiritual eyes, we see Jesus and we undergo a gradual one degree to another transformation into his images, into his image. Our old blind self, hardened against God and his truth, goes away and gives way to our new self, increasingly like our Lord and Savior, Jesus. What we see changes who we are. I see Jesus and I become like Jesus. This, this old hardened mind or this mind that is conformed to the world's thinking, that's how Paul talks about how sin distorts us. Sin distorts our heads, our thinking, and, and leads us to destructive feelings or behaviors, leads us to wrong conclusions about God and ourselves and the world around us. Sin has impacted every area of our life, including our minds, including what we believe, what we know, what we build our lives on. Now, I want to be as tangible as I can here. I can think of at least four broad categories where we can see the destructive impact of sin on our minds. The first category is outright ignorance. This could be the, the simple naivete of a child. 
Right now, our nursery downstairs is full of children who don't know a lot of things. There are, there are many realities about the world and about God and about themselves that they, they simply don't know because they're infants. They, they need to be taught truth. They don't know how to read or write or drive a car. They don't know who God is, what the gospel is, what is right and wrong. And as they grow, it's our job to teach them those things. And that's why parenting is exhausting. It could also be the ignorance of the man or woman who is living in a community with no gospel witness or, or no gospel access. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You can't take Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you don't know that Jesus exists. If you've never heard of him, that's ignorance. Who is this man? Or it could be the ignorance of a believer who is missing a piece of the puzzle of, of God's counsel. They don't know what they don't know. This was true of Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, if you have your Bibles. Acts 18, 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He's a Christian, and he's preaching, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had only heard about John's baptism for repentance. He had not heard about Jesus' baptism into the new life. And so, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos was ignorant of the truth, and the, this husband and wife pulled him aside and said, hey, let us give you more information. So there's this outright ignorance. Second, there is a willful blindness. This is true of the unbeliever who closes and covers their spiritual eyes lest they see God. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Or Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They turned away from the true God to worship false gods. They, they covered their eyes and said, we don't want God. We don't want to know who he is. That can also be true of the wayward, backsliding believer. In Hebrews 5, 
Verse 11, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So there's this willful blindness. This, I have not learned the truth. I am pushing it away. And then third, there's a misplaced zeal. Think of the Pharisees in the Gospels. They knew God's word inside and out. They knew and believed lots of theological truths. But ultimately, they believed that salvation for them came by their ability to perform, their ability to uphold the law. And so their religious energy was wasted and even turned toward wickedness. Jesus says of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 3, they preach but do not practice. And in, in Romans 10, 2 and 3, Paul says of these legalistic Jews, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they have energy. They, they work hard to know things, but what they know is wrong and what they believe is untrue. And so their, their energy is misplaced. And then finally, fourth, there is foolish forgetfulness. Paul refers to the Galatian church this way in Galatians 3, 1 through 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being per perfected by the flesh? So have you forgotten what you once knew? Or Peter says this to the persecuted and harassed and suffering saints he addressed in his letter. So in 2 Peter Chapter 1, 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And if Peter needs to remind people, that means we must be able to forget. My point is that all four of these categories are true of you, and need to, need to be discipled. You need to be discipled through and out of these four realities. There are things you don't know. There are things you have forgotten. There are things that you believe that are wrong. There's religious energy that you are expending in the wrong direction. The ignorant child, the rebel, the Pharisee and the forgetful fool lives in me and lives in you. Some of us need to confess and repent here. 
we have the attitude that we know it all, that we're finished products, that we've arrived. And some of us need to repent of our anti-intellectualism. We, we marginalize the life of the mind. We plead ignorance as an excuse to not do the hard work of thinking and learning. And Paul says, no, 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 you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that transformation is a miracle that only God can do. You cannot transform your own mind. You cannot disciple someone so well that you transform their mind by your work. You need Jesus to transform your mind. We need to be discipled through this, but the, the essential cure for our broken minds is not discipleship. It's the gospel. It's, it's, it's believing the truth about Jesus. We can't change our minds until God changes our hearts. We can't see the truth until God gives us spiritual eyes. The, the first step in discipleship, in following Jesus and becoming like him and helping others to do the same, that the first step is to see Jesus as someone worth following. To be a disciple, you must respond to Jesus' call out of sin, out of rebellion, out of death, out of destruction, out of shame, out of brokenness, into freedom and forgiveness and life and peace and holiness and obedience. You must repent of your sin and surrender your claim as king or queen of your own life. Trust Jesus as your rescuer and ruler, as your supreme authority and treasure. Do you notice in the Gospels that there's a bunch of different spots, but but a couple spots, that when Jesus heals the demoniac, the, the man that's living out in the cemetery, cutting himself, breaking chains, etc., when Jesus heals him, which is a picture of salvation, it says that he was clothed and what? In his right mind. His mind was restored by the grace of Jesus Christ. He his mind was gone because of the demonic oppression. Jesus set him free and gave him back his mind. For the first time, he thought rightly because of the grace of Christ. Or when Jesus talks about the prodigal son, this, this boy who ran away from home, threw his life away, dishonored his father, was living in open rebellion, finally he's sitting in the pig pen, in the muck, in the mire, and Jesus says he came to his senses and went home. So that's Jesus. That's what Jesus does to us in salvation. In salvation, he takes your broken mind that is conformed to this world and he brings you to your senses and you see truth. You see, I'm not the king. I'm not the queen. Jesus is. I have been living wrongly based on wrong beliefs 
But now I see the truth and I'm changing. I'm going a different direction. That's the miracle that only Jesus can do. Now, because this is true, because we need minds that are transformed and only Jesus can transform our minds, what type of church ought we to be? If we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, how should we organize as a church? What kind of structures should we have in place? What kind of habits should we pursue together? Jesus has done the miraculous work of giving himself up on the cross as payment for our sins. Jesus is the one that's redeeming us, granting us new hearts, new minds. We've come to understand how much of a mess sin has made in us. And while we are redeemed, we now understand I'm still ignorant. I still have areas in my heart where I'm willfully blind I, I have places, of, I have areas of my life that where I'm zealous for the wrong things. I'm prone to childish forgetfulness. And so are you. And so what ought we to do? How ought we to behave? How should we organize our church to foster the transformation of the renewal of the mind? The first thing is what we're doing right now. Every Sunday morning, 10 o'clock in the summer, 10.30 the rest of the year. On Sunday mornings, we are a church who strives to worship Jesus the way that Jesus tells us to worship him in John 4. In John 4, he tells the woman at the well, I am looking for worshipers who worship me in spirit and in truth. I don't care how zealous they are if they're not worshiping me. And if they see me, they're going to become zealous. I want people who are worshiping me in spirit and truth, Jesus says. And so that's what we try to do on Sunday mornings. We have to grasp this. Sunday morning worship, the, the hour or hour and 15 minutes that we spend together is the primary vehicle for discipleship in the church. It's the first step. It's the cornerstone that the rest of the, of the structure of discipleship is built on. If we had to cancel everything else as a church, which of course we don't, but if we had to, this would be the thing we keep. This hour that we spend together. If we could do only one event this would be it. This service is the one time in the week where we are all gathered together. We are all sitting under the word, whether it's the word read. We, we did this corporate reading of Psalm 148. We read Psalm 148 to each other. Dave prayed, and if you listen to his prayer, it was full of Bible. We sang songs based on scripture. We listened to preaching every Sunday from the word. And it's not about me preaching. It's about the word being preached. So whoever stands in the pulpit on Sunday mornings. 
And then in a few minutes, we'll act out the word together in the Lord's Supper. That is discipleship. That is an effort for us together to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. A central aim in the weekly worship service is to gather, open up our Bibles, and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We open the Bible and we say, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. So we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ together on Sunday mornings and we're transformed by the renewal of our minds and transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We declare to each other true things about God and about humanity and about creation and we shape our lives around these truths. We glorify God that these things are true. So don't, don't minimize what we do on Sunday mornings. Week after week after week after week until the Lord returns. And we, we need to remember on Sunday mornings that we all come with something to learn. We all come with some way that our thinking needs to be reoriented. Our understanding needs to be sharpened. Our assumptions need to be challenged. Our memory needs to be refreshed. Nobody walked in this morning a finished product. No one here has plumbed the depths and mapped out the extent of God's truth, God's love, God's glory. So we ought to come on Sunday mornings hungry to be challenged, to learn, to be reminded, to be refreshed, to be encouraged. It's the first way we need to structure ourselves as a church, but it's also true of kids' ministry, family discipleship, kids' Sunday school, children's church, this Wednesday night ministry starting this week. I've heard it referred to uh, discipleship to children. I've heard it referred to as, think of a child's heart as a fireplace. Some of you have heard this analogy before. A child's heart is like a fireplace, and, and the goal of children's ministry is to put as much wood as we can in that fireplace. We put these logs in the fireplace, and then we put kindling in the log, around the logs, and then we put tinder, dry tinder in the kindling. So we, we try to create this environment in the child's heart where the Holy Spirit can come and set it on fire. We try to put as much fuel as we can in a child's mind for the Holy Spirit to fan into flame, for them to know the truth about Jesus. The Holy Spirit loves to open children's eyes through that type of ministry, whether it's at home or in the church. How many of you came to faith because a parent or a grandparent, or a Sunday school teacher, or a youth pastor, or a Christian camp counselor sat you down and told you the truth, taught you propositions about Jesus, truth claims, exposed you to the truth of God's word again and again until finally one day it clicked and your eyes were open and you saw 
I believe these things that I've been taught from my youth. So that's true of family discipleship. That's true for discipling adults as well. How do adults, how do grown-ups change through the renewal of their minds? Feed yourself the word. Feed others the word. Pile up the fuel in your heart and see what God does. Put some logs in your neighbor's fireplace so that the Holy Spirit can use it. Be part of a community group. Attend a Bible study. Come to Sunday school. It's not just for kids. If you struggle to read your Bible, if you don't know how to do it, if you have a hard time being consistent in your Bible reading, ask someone for help. There are men and women in this church who would love to help you read your Bible. And if you do know how to read your Bible, help someone else read their Bible. So, in the Gospels, Jesus calls his followers disciples. And they called him rabbi or teacher. The call from Jesus to follow him is all-encompassing. He wants our hearts, our souls, our strength, and he wants our minds. He wants to teach us what we don't know. He wants to correct what we believe wrongly. He wants to remind us what we've forgotten. He, he has come so that we may know and behold his glory and be transformed. So let's set our minds to learn what he wants to teach. Let's pray. Father, would you give us spiritual eyes? That is the miracle that only you can do. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things. Open our eyes so that we may behold your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. Stir up our minds. Bring us to our right senses so that we may know Jesus and follow him and help others do the same. In Jesus we pray, amen.